Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Johnston, co-founder of Uphill Athlete. These podcasts are just one of several free services we provide to the mountain athlete community. We have a ton of free content on our website, uphillathlete.com, to help you with any of your mountain pursuits, be they mountaineering, alpinism, skimo, ski mountaineering, or mountain running. Today, I'm pleased to welcome my friend and fellow sexagenarian climber, Jim Nelson. Jim and I are going to be discussing his latest guidebook, Classic Cascade Climbs. Jim partnered with co-authors Tom Sholseth and Dave Whitelaw, and they've just published this book, um, and it's kind of a follow-up to the previous two books that um, Jim had done with a different author. There were uh, two-volume set of selected climbs in the Cascades. This one, Cascade Climbs, or Classic Cascade Climbs, published by the Mountaineers Books, is sure to fire your imagination of even the most seasoned climber. While giving plenty of relevant data for the climbs, the killer photos are really going to be what leave this book on your coffee table as an inspiration. It seems to me, this kind of as an older generation climber, that guidebooks have become sort of passe and are being replaced by apps with very detailed topos that describe in micro detail you know, what size gear to place where. Um, and sure, like a repair manual for a car, this type of guide will definitely be the quickest and easiest way to get familiar with the route. But for my taste, what's been lost with this clinical approach to climbing guidebooks is that it reduces the routes down to some numbers. And it's lost some of that romantic appeal that, that should be, I think, what, or what does probably drive most of us towards climbing. Um, Jim's uniquely qualified to write a book like this. His climbing career um, started in the early 70s, and he's got a, like, enough notable ascents to make up a book all of them all on their own. Um, to mention just a few, Jim did the second ascent of the Infinite Spur on Mount Foraker with Mark Bibier. Um, he did an eight-day first um, first winter ascent of Mount Slethy's Northeast Buttress with Kit Lewis did the second descent, um, or excuse me, the second descent of that was not done until 29 years later by Marc-Andre Leclerc. Um, he pulled off another eight, a brutal eight-day stormy uh, winter climb of the girth pillar on Mount Stewart with Kit Lewis. Definitely shows that Jim's not one to shy away from Sufferfest. And so as, as might be expected for a climber of his stature, Jim and Fred Becky hooked up and racked up quite a few first ascents together. With the breadth of his experience spanning five decades, Jim is uniquely positioned to bring to our attention so many of the routes that are more obscure but very still, still really worthy. Um, with the wild growth and the popularity of climbing, the most popular routes in the Cascades can be a uh, kind of a, a, a crowd scene. Um, Jim sheds some light on some really fine climbs that should allow you to experience a bit more solitude and serenity. I think this book should be in every Cascade Climbers library. And, and even those folks that are traveling here, um, which is to this most, the most alpine range in the lower 48, would definitely benefit hugely from snagging a copy of this thing. It will cause you to be rethinking maybe some of the routes you had uh, I picked out. So also, if you're looking for some the best gear around or route beta or even just a good story, Jim's the owner of Pro Mountain Sports in Seattle, and you should definitely pay him a visit if you're in the area. So let's get with it. 
Well, thanks for agreeing to let me subject you to this. Uh, hopefully it's, it's not too, uh, too painful. Um, but I think that what, what you've done with this book is really cool. I love looking through it. I've read, you know, most of the descriptions. I, I have to confess that I, I'm envious. I'm, I'm kind of jealous. I would love to be, have climbed more of those roots that are in that book. Um, so me too. <laughs> thank you for, for putting that together. It's just lovely pictures. I really like the pictures I find, and I'm sure many climbers do. I mean, we're, we're inspired by beauty and there's so many beautiful pictures in there that it gets your juices flowing for sure. And I, I hope that was, I would assume that was part of your, your attempt, your, your in, intent, excuse me. No, it's always nice to hear that, but yeah, pictures are we love the pictures, so we put a lot of them in there. There's there's a lot of information in pictures, and yeah. Well, and and some of them are. Uh, it looked like they were on Kodachrome. You know that some of them are pretty old. <laughs> I have to say they're not digital. I can tell that. And some of those people, yep, yeah, and the dates. Yeah, that's pretty cool. How did did you have any trouble rounding those old photos up? Most of my pictures are on, on film. What are you talking about? Yeah, no, but I mean, some of them aren't yours, I guess. Is what digital, I yeah, yeah, no. Um, well, I just, I guess from the previous books, I've, I've met a lot of, a lot of people. And so I had a lot of, a lot of um, friends and resources to draw on, but of course the Skurlock photos are, you know, that's, that's just a huge library of, you know, every angle on, on almost every peak you want. And, if there's something you don't have, like I didn't have, he didn't have a tooth or an Ingalls peak. So he, you know, he says, Oh yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll go take some. So. What a guy so, yeah. Yeah, for those yeah. the listeners that are not familiar with uh, John Skurlock's photographs, you should be. He's one of the most amazing mountain photographers I've ever seen. And he does them all um, while flying a small plane around these mountains. And so their uh, aspects or, or angles and uh, views that, you know, you won't really get from the bottom of the valley looking up, but they're, they're really stunning and spectacular. So I commend, I recommend people to try to track down some Skurlock photos of their, their favorite climbs. Yeah. And artistically too. I mean, gosh, some of the prints I've seen of, yeah. Yeah. I have, I have one of the, uh, what is it? I guess the North Face, that really famous one, or not really famous, I think it's pretty, one of his more famous ones, that North Face of Mount Triumph that shows the Northeast Buttress, the Bordeaux-Dorish route, and then it also shows the, the more popular East Ridge in profile. So it's, it's quite a beautiful picture. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a stunning peak, and it's interesting. I think our first book, I actually had a pictures before I even knew John Skurlock, or I don't think he was even taking pictures yet, but I was able to fly around the Cascades a couple times years ago in the winter. And I, I had a picture of uh, Triumph in the, you know, the North side there, you know, just a stunning winter shot that um, I think is in our first book. Yeah. So let's talk about how, how you came to write this book. I mean, you've written a number of books on climbing and yet there are two, your, two of your more, popular ones that I think people are still using today, the, the selected climbs of the Cascades, the nor, uh, first and second, uh, there's two, excuse me, two volumes, first and second volume of that. So this, how does this build on, on that book, or those books? Well, um, I, how does it build on the, well, it's really just a redo of, of those two books. I mean, the original one um, was 
popular enough that the publisher wanted a second one. So that, that was why there was a second. And then, um, you know, they're, they, they're old enough now that there's, you know, rethinking the whole thing. I think this, the new book, we have a much, much better selection of climbs that um, shows the different types of climbing better as well, as well as more geographic areas. And, and um, uh, of course they're able to do color, color printing now, which, which they hadn't previously, so. Yeah, well, the color makes a huge difference. I mean, I know we've all, of course, relied for many, many years on the Fred Becky's books, which look like the kind of, in many cases, some of them look like the drawings that, you know, you we might have done in third grade. So they're kind of difficult to find the roots and follow them. Um, but yours, these beautiful photographs and the lines drawn on them really do help identify features and roots and and even better than you know your previous book which was black and white so previous book excuse me um so i think that's a, a big plus for it and so go ahead sorry excuse me look like you were going to say something well and of course now there you know with the internet the, the amount of in route information is endless and so you know we we tried not to overdo the route information and and more um just give everybody a basically an introduction or an overview of the cascades was was really the idea sure and then if somebody sees one of those routes that's inspiring to them they can go do, dig a little deeper online and probably get like you said talk to mr google and you know you'll, you'll start there's no end you know no end to this to the information so i mean yeah. obviously we can make some nice observations and Give some some important information, but we we try not to overdo it and let the let the uh, pictures speak for themselves, I guess. Yeah. So, what were some of the were there? What are the different? What are some of the routes that are included in this book that either weren't included in pr the previous editions or previous the, the two previous volumes of selected climbs, or are, are especially interesting to you because they were kind of obscure, but you're finding out that you know, they're now they become more popular. As you, I know you said that the first two volumes of your book caused some renewed interest in some more obscure climbs. And which ones would those be that you think that were most brought to light well, by those books? Yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, climbing wasn't nearly as popular, I guess that's probably part of it, but. Um, a lot of the, the climbs in that first book were climbs that um, I had done multiple times. I've always enjoyed repeating routes and I was doing a lot of guiding at the time. And so uh, looking for climbs that, that wouldn't be too difficult for my clients. And so um, climbs like the Keensabi Glacier, if you can believe it or not, or um, Kolchak Peak, just really dead obvious climbs these days that are extremely popular. They basically had no traffic back then until until the book, really. I mean, Keensabi Glacier, I never saw tracks or another party on there ever. You know, before, you know, I don't even remember what year the first book was, but uh, it's, it's probably like, I want to say mid 80s or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, south the southwest gully of South Early Winter Spire was one I always, you know, was when the highway would open, I'd be anxious to get up there on my skis and, you know, obvious route to bag bag the nice summit there. And again, never 
was anybody doing that climb. In fact, um, one of the one of the reviews, the reviewers of the first book, um, criticized the choice of that route, <laughs> saying that it was a terrible route, loose rock and and dangerous. And of course, this is all true once the snow's gone. But that was the whole point. We we're trying to to show, you know, get out of the the rut of of the, you know a little bit more off season. Suggested not, you know. The, yeah. the snowier season or whereas in this we did the same thing with the first book with some more mixed climbs you know more winter routes or early early spring routes or sure. that um were basically you know, fairly unknown at the time well that um so the kind of the northeast base on on cutthroat that little there's a little ice climb there yeah yeah yeah, that's a great yeah. climb. I've enjoyed that climb a few times. You know, hard to get the right conditions for it, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've I've gotten part way up it a couple of times and had to bail because of conditions. But one time, Steve Steve House and I managed to hit it in really good climbing ice conditions in in early May, and yeah, it's it's a fun climb, definitely worth doing. Yeah, and so accessible. So you know, yeah, you don't, you, yeah, the conditions you can just jump on it when when you when you read a trip report on the internet now, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. But maybe that's something that you and I should delve into a little bit. I mean, we're, we're kind of from another generation than this whole internet generation. And, um, you know, I know from your experience, your, your climbing res your, your climbing career and resume is not too dissimilar to my own. Um, and we started at roughly the same time, kind of high school age and uh, in the early 70s and kind of have been riding it ever since as, as much as our old bodies will allow us to. Uh, but it's, it's the changes that we've seen over the years where I, I know that when you first started going to Canada to climb, like I did, the information, let's say, in, uh, and I think probably here, I wasn't climbing in the North Cascades then, so I, I can't comment on that. But I do know that going to the Bugaboos and the Canadian Rockies in the 70s, their information was so sparse. And you know, the things that they called guidebooks today, the, the things that they call guidebooks today, would we would call laughable. You know, they're, yeah. they're you know, some massive routes that would have just the sparsest information of how to even find the base of the climb and then okay you're well like for the bugaboos for the bugaboos back then the best information was the hut log when you got there yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah i know you you and i both climbed the uh the becky chenard or on on a south hauser around the same time i think i might have climbed it a couple years after you did and you know at that time, there there was very little information other than that it was you know I think what five nine a two or something like that and so we asked the hut warden you know has it ever been free climbed and he said no so we said oh well like we think we can handle that we'll try it and we did manage to free it um, and we came back and the hut warden said yeah I think that's the first free ascent of that thing but it was just like okay so now that information's in the the hut log. And that's it. You know, it doesn't go into, there's no internet. There's, there weren't even, you know, if, if something did manage to make it into a magazine, it might be two months or more after a climb was done before the information might see the light of day in the public's eye. And so it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I like what we've seen, the transition we've seen. It gives people much more ready access. And, but it's you know, guys like you and me who've been around a long time, 
I feel like we're kind of playing catch up a little bit. Like, I mean, I still don't quite get the whole, uh, you know, the the phone apps that have all the climbing routes on them. I, I have a hard struggle with using those things. And, um, I'm sure you're kind of, you have some similar experiences and some similar feelings. Yeah. Well, no, I don't hesitate to use the information. I'm, I'm always curious to see what, what people are, you know, suggest you get a good suggestion on how to, how to avoid a bad section or a little variation that might be an improvement or, uh, some beta on how to make the, you know, how to, what to take with you, et cetera. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine when you and Steve Swenson climbed the north face of Mount Temple, I'll bet you did not have a super topo guide. For well, we knew, we knew nothing. I mean, I can't even remember. I think there probably was a guide for the Canadian Rockies. That's how we knew about the climb. But I think, um, yeah, we, we just... Um, Route finding, I think, has just always been part of, we, we never really looked to detailed information. We just sort of, you know, route finding was always part of the, just part of what you, what you did. Yeah, and I've, I've, I feel like that's a skill, and I mean, I'm not trying to be um, pontificating here, but I do think it's an important skill that climbers have to be able to look up and think kind of when you're looking up at the route and you're on the route or you're try, even deciding the next three moves, let alone the next three pitches, I think it's a valuable skill to be able to put yourself in the mind of the first ascensionist and think, okay, if I was the first person up here, where would I go? And, you know, I mean, generally the first ascensionist is looking for the easiest way up. And I think that that often gets overlooked these days. You know, in my experience, when I've been guiding or just been in the mountains in general, I come across people who struggle with route finding um, because they don't have that kind of first ascensionist mindset. You know, they're looking for some landmark. And if you're, if you're following the place where other people went off route, then you're going to go off route as well. Yeah, I'm usually looking where the rock's the most solid, I guess, or, but I mean, that's just for rock climbs. And then, um, you know, for more mixed routes, you know, the conditions often dictate um, your, your choice of route. Yeah, for sure. So when you, when this book, when you, did you decide to go, I think you said the Mountaineers published this book. Were they the ones that published your previous books as well? Yeah, they published the previous okay. ones. The first and so one, they, and then, then they asked for a second one. And so, yeah. But it's been a few years since those books have come out or been out. Was it, were they, did they come to you with this idea? Hey, Jim, we need some, a new book. Or did you approach them and say, I'd like to. Yeah, no, they, they approached us and um, hmm. they, they want us to put the two books together into one, which only makes sense. And sure. at that point, you know, I was, I got, the more I started working on it, the more excited I got and, um, you know, trying to decide how to put together which climbs to, to choose yeah. um you know some of the climbs that we that, that we left that we really missed the first time were a couple of big climbs um done by pete dorish mm -hmm. so um got in touch with pete and was you know had a great time hearing about his, his climbs and his trips and got a lot of valuable information just um about a lot of climbs yeah yeah well like I said, for folks that haven't seen the book, I highly recommend you get a copy, you know, if, even if you don't live with ac ready access to the North Cascades, it's, uh, it's mouthwatering and it will definitely get you fired up to, 
to go climbing in this area. I, I, I really, it, like I said at the beginning, it kind of made me wish I was 20 years younger out getting out there and still chasing after those kind of climbs. Um, did, did you find that uh, like the, some of the climbs I know are newer and they weren't even you know, done when you wrote those other two books? And how did you decide which of, those new, of the newer climbs to, to put in? Well, um, as with the previous books, we've always included some sort of mixed routes, more winter climbs, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so we want to do that again. And rather than just, you know, repeating the ones we had shown previously, um, I guess the one that really comes to mind to me is the one on um, Whitehorse. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The Rolf Larson and um, uh, Pete Hurst route a route that I had also seen from the air uh, years ago and was just quite taken by it. And um, so, yeah, we included that one. It's a, it's a it's done fairly recently. I don't, I'm sure it hasn't had a second ascent. And so there it is. Um, all you mixed climbers, it, um, there's a, there's an attractive line that's close to Seattle and has a um, moderate approach, doesn't have a multi-day approach at all. It's, um, well, nowadays, I guess everything they do in a one day, right? Exactly, yes. I mean, right. I think yeah. the first ascent party spent a day on the approach and a day for the climb, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then um, you know, also we try to, besides just the route information, we try and include some, some history too, as we learn more about the, like one thing we didn't have in the previous books was any, I'm just sort of, uh, backpacking traverses or mountaineering traverses, if you will, mm -hmm. like the Tarmigan traverses, the, the one everybody knows. Um, Where else is there is information on the Tarmigan? I mean, in, in public, in, in written format. Um, well, we, if you, if you buy our book, um, the, the Tarmigan traverse chapter, we have a chapter for the Tarmigan traverse. Although to get the full Tarmingan Traverse history of the um, original Tarmingans who made this uh, traverse back in um, the 30s, 1938, I think, we, um, we quote from an article that was written in the 50s by Harvey Manning. And so you can access that um, online at the, with the Mountaineer um, annuals are archived. And so we give the 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 year and how to access um, stuff like that. In fact, you can with pretty much any climb that you're you're interested in when you're looking through the book. If you want to um, read about the first ascent, you can um, oftentimes find the write up of the first ascent in the Mountaineer annuals that are, like I said, available um, online. Well, I know you had there's a, a a nice picture. I've always wondered what Herman Ulrich looked like. And somehow I pictured him to be a little more round, cherubic, older German gentleman. But instead, what I saw is he's a lean, ripped young man in those pictures. And I thought, oh, okay, this is, I completely changed my, like, my mental picture of this guy yeah, who was doing these. Yeah, a very things. bold Amazing. rock climber, you know, at the time. You know, he's obviously a very, very skilled rock climber, some of the uh, solo rock climbs that he that he had managed you know he soloed sir donald um uh the, the bear creek spire in the sierras i guess there's no easy route up but i'm not really familiar with it but mm -hmm. i'm told that it's one of the more challenging peaks and the first ascent was made by herman as a as a young teenager 
um, solo. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. I, I like seeing pictures like that because it, you know, it's one thing to read about these people and it's another to, to see them and, you know, see them in their, you know, see them in their heyday, in their glory days, you know, when they were young and virile and uh, fit and all that. And you can, then you realize, oh, that's how this person did all this stuff because he has an amazing history here in you know, all over, but especially in the Northwest here. Well, Herman Ulrich was only in the Cascades for in Seattle for a few years, but um, he, he the amount there. of climbing that at, at a time when the mountains were so unexplored, really, yeah. um, he was the first to to even think of doing winter climbs. And um, one of the one of the early peaks that he attempted was Mount Index in winter. In winter, and again, these are this is in the twenties. Wow, that's. Yeah, very impressive. Very impressive. And it, I yeah, I mean, for... they, they they were just opening. They were had just opened the road over Snoqualmie Pass. You know, you could drive up there for the first time, and and um, so just getting to many of these peaks was was no easy easy task. Not at all. You know, and I, I think it's you know we we are in a sport where the history of the sport is. Um, Luckily, it's pretty well chronicled now, and I, I think we, I feel that we contemporary climbers, you know, I'm not, I don't put myself in the, the category now anymore of a contemporary climber. I'm kind of an old man, but I feel that like, I've always been interested in the history. You know, I grew up in Colorado, and the legacy of people like Leighton Core and uh, folks like that, and and then, you know, I started climbing in the Canadian Rockies a lot. And there was the stories about Bugs McKeith and this, the, the legacy of those people, those early climbers has always fascinated me. And it's also inspired me because I realized you know, they were, they were dealing with conditions and, and uh, approaches and whatnot that we, we don't have to manage anymore. Like you and I were having a conversation earlier, a few weeks ago about Herman Ulrich's uh, climb of Silver Star Mountain um, near, near Washington Pass. And, you know, you mentioned him, he went up Cedar Creek and uh, then up the West Fork of Cedar Creek. It's a heck of a long way. And as, and tell me, remind me that story. Didn't he, didn't he go from the trailhead to the summit in one day? No, he, he, he spent, they took all day to get to Winthrop, basically. They had an epic drive over Snoqualmie Pass at that time, you know, Blewett Pass wasn't there. So they crossed the Columbia River at Vantage and then they drive up and then, and then um, eventually up the Methow, they get to Winthrop at four in the afternoon. They don't know anything about this map, this mountain other than this map that had just been published by the uh, Forest, Forest Service as a result of a Winthrop Ranger by the name of Loggy Wernstadt, hmm. who is a whole nother story. Um, yeah. But, so yeah, they they they're at Cedar Creek Trailhead at five five in the evening, and then they hike up all the way up Cedar Creek, and then up this branch up under the south face of Silver Star that evening in September. Yeah, and the days were short, so they were hiking probably in the dark. To by the time they got to their campsite, I would say. Um, it's several miles up there for sure. Well, there's a little the last bit last. 2,000 foot climb up to the, to below the south face to a little basin up there, a little meadow. There's a little little bit of a climber's trail now, 
it's not easy to find a trail sketch. Of course, when Herman was there, there was no trail at all. I mean, there was a trail up Cedar Creek, but then at some point they leave that trail and they head on up, you know, up the steep hillside. Yeah, I think a lot of the trails around here, you know, which um, when I say here, I mean that area, Cedar Creek and around Washington Pass, a lot of those trails were horse packer, hunter, fisherman, hunter trails uh, that, that were built by the horse packers. Um, and that Cedar Creek, I think, was one of them. Uh, it goes further on and it goes over, um, I can't remember the name of that little pass at the end of the, of the creek drainage, but, but it's still, that's a remarkable undertaking. Just to drive over would be well, even today, and, Even today, <laughs> with all the beta and everything and the climber's trail, you leave in September, you leave the trailhead at 5 p.m. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure you're going to make it up there to where Herman camped. Yeah. Well, and, and like, what were they driving? It had to be some sort of you model, know, model, 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 a model T model T model T Ford. Uh, that's a heck of a long way to drive a car like that. At probably well, they had numerous hour. breakdowns and, and um, yeah, they, I guess, yeah, it took them all day. <laughs> so it's interesting, you know, the, the motivation and the drive, I mean, I don't mean drive in terms of, you know, the, these guys were fired up to do this because that's no small undertaking. You know, somebody now jumps in their Tesla, drives to Winthrop or Mazama, and then heads right. up the Cedar Creek Trail. You know, they're riding an air-conditioned comfort at 70 miles an hour, and they get there fresh and all ready to go, and they've got lightweight gear. And, you know, they're still fired up, and they want to go climb. But these guys were all, like an order of magnitude beyond that in terms of their stoke because of what they had to go through just to even get to the damn base of the climb. Yeah, no, Herman, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't content just, you know, going up to the Mountaineers Lodge and doing the, the Snoqualmie Pass Peaks. He, um, you know, this, like I mentioned earlier, this map had just come out prior, prior to this, this map. Um, the North Cascades really hadn't been mapped and were really, really unknown other than the volcanoes. And so that was the motivation for Herman was to, you know, there's this mountain on there, Silver Star with an elevation. And he's like, wow, this is, a, this is one of the highest mountains in that area. Let's, let's go climb it. <laughs> you know, he was, he was, he wanted to be the first to climb all these, these um, unexplored unknown mountains basically. Yeah. Of course, he got a little bit of a surprise. He didn't find out. I don't think he found out at the time, but the mountain had actually been climbed by the map maker a couple of years before Herman. Oh. So that was probably a place he surveyed from then, the map maker, because it's one of you know it's almost nine thousand feet. So good place to set up your what are that theodolite um, and your. Well, he had a no. He he had a camera. He had a you know a big tripod. And he put a camera on there, and then um, they take these photographs, and then they. It's a type of um, early map making um, called photogrammy, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, he climbed quite a few. He climbed um, well. Other first ascents at this uh, um, Loggy Warnstead fella did were well. It's quite a lengthy list, but I think um, Black Peak is one. Mount Logan is one. Um, he didn't climb any of the pickets, but all those cool names in the pickets, those are his names. Um, really? Terror, Fury, Challenger. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's 
And I could imagine that camera was not lightweight. <laughs> it was lugging right. something like that. Well, the tripod itself, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't have space age materials back then. Yeah. So. No, it, it's so impressive to me that people, you know, when I, now, of course, it seems like the fixation on, and I, and I understand it, and I'm totally, I think it's really cool that, you know, the, the, the fixation of modern climbers often is this, how fast can you do a route and, and all that, which is great. You know, there needs to be new challenges for people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always appreciated that and, and you know, uh, and I always try to, well, I think like the complete North route of Stewart, that's one of my early car to car climb back in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's always it's it's cool to see when we can do that kind of thing quickly. And I'm sure you know we're, when we're speaking now, which is uh, middle of June, you know, two weeks ago or roughly, um, a party of three climbed the uh, the Czech direct on the south face of Denali in 17 hours. Um, you know, and this is a route that when you know the the first ascent took something like you know seven days. Then Steve and Mark Dwight and Scott Backies came along a few years later and they climbed it in, I think, 50 or 52 hours. And now it's been climbed in 17. Um, and it, it's, it's wonderful to see those records dropping. I mean, Steve was really uh, excited and pleased to hear that, that his old record had been broken. And, and um, you know, it shows that you know, climbing is progressing and it's really nice to see that. And, um, well, the fitness, think, the fitness and the training, I guess, is yeah. becomes fit, so well, important. To, certainly equipment has gotten lighter. The ice tools are much better than they used to be. And, uh, you know, you can imagine, you know, I bet Herman Ulrich could have climbed M7 if he'd had modern ice tools. <laughs> um, but I no just, doubt, no doubt. It's, it's just so impressive to me because I think of the hardships. I mean, you, you likewise, and I think most people, we think of, when we're doing some of these really challenging and difficult things for us, I mean, on a relative basis, everyone's going to have their own relative scale of difficulty. But when we are out there and we're near our limits, we're just thinking, how could anybody else climb faster or harder than this? And then we think back to, you know, here's 1930 or whenever, and people climbing at the, that sort of level or with like that level of stoke that they can drive all the way from Seattle. And it helped, for me, it, it helps me be a little more humble about you know, kind of where you know on, we are all standing on the shoulders of giants like Herman Ulrich. Of course, of course, yeah. yeah. And let's not forget the ptarmigans. Yeah, or the ptarmigans. Yeah, well, there's, now, a, there's, there's a, a long a, list of them. There's now a there's a there's a second ascent that's waiting for someone to do. You know, 80 years after the first ascent. And of course, now not only will someone repeat it, but they'll, you know, they'll they'll set it, they'll they'll do it in an amazing, amazing short time. What what is that? The Tarmigan Traverse. Oh yes. So uh, a friend of mine did it in some like seven or eight hours. To well, see, that's ago. the thing. Your friend did kind of a hiking route that yeah, has become was... known as the Tarmigan Traverse. But yes, the original okay. Tarmigan Traverse in 1938 done by four teenagers <laughs> when these this part of the cascades was basically unexplored they climbed 13 peaks most of the peaks were um first ascents the peaks had not been climbed two or three of them had just been climbed that year or the year before 
So no one is, has actually repeated the original Tarmian Traverse climbing all 13 peaks. So that needs to be, uh, needs to be set right then. You know, I, I would think to, so. I need to throw down the gauntlet with some of these mountain runners that I know who have done it, you know, and in, in uh, you know, with running shoes and a, and a, a little light, you know, some uh, lightweight crampons and lightweight ice axe. I need to, I need to tell them to get out there and do the real thing. Well, and if they, yeah, and, and I mean, one of the peaks, the Mount Buckner, which had been climbed mm -hmm. um, previously, you know, from, you know, the southwest, kind of the, the scramble side, the Tarmigans um, climbed the north face. Oh, um, really? I yeah, know. on the same day that they climbed Sahali and, and Boston Peak on the way over to the north face of Buckner. But what's interesting about their climb of the north face of Buckner is they only had one ice axe between the four of them. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, they were too poor. Basically they didn't own any climbing gear and their, their mentor, um, a climber, a famous climber by the name of Omi Diver, who had made the first ascent of Liberty Ridge on Rainier and um, started uh, Seattle Mountain Rescue. He was their mentor and he loaned them his ice axe so that they would have one ice axe between the four of them. And I would assume then the leader was chopping steps and the rest were coming along behind. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Golly. Very, very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. And these were kids. These were teenagers. They were teenagers. Yeah. So whose, par whose parents were not. Obviously, <laughs> whose parents well, they were actually, they were them. just, they were crazy about climbing. You know, they're, they're, they were in this youth group and Omi Diver was their mentor and he got them really fired up and they did all kinds of climbing prior to this trip. But um, yeah, still quite a, quite an impressive um, yeah, trip. Very, very. So it's great to be able to include some of the history of some of these, um, not just the Tarming and Traverse, but many of the peaks. Yeah. Um, I just uh, learned so much about the peaks, you know, as I got more into the, into the project. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did some very deep dives. Yeah. One, one interesting tidbit that I ran across was uh, I didn't r realize the Cascades have some of the highest waterfalls in the world. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there's this big database, you know, the waterfall people, the waterfall freaks kind of like, you know, like us for climbing, but um, I guess it, it sort of depends on how you define waterfall. These aren't, these aren't free flow, free falling drops, but, um, off the, off the uh, south side of Mount Shuxon and off right off the North Cascades highway off of Colonial Peak, there's, um, um, a couple thousand foot high, um, water steep steep streams i guess series of waterfalls is what you'd call them but mm -hmm. the waterfall uh, geeks classify them as waterfalls wow must have certain must be able to only cover a certain amount of distance for a certain amount of drop in order to qualify as a waterfall then yeah i'm not exactly sure but but you'll see a, you'll see three or four of the highest waterfalls in the world um on their database in right here in the cascades cool huh that's interesting and if we lived at, uh, you know, if we were a few thousand feet higher, those would be some amazing ice climbs in the winter. <laughs> well, we can, we can dream, but unfortunately yeah. we got, we got, we got kind of the short end of the, yeah. yeah. That's why we have, that's why we have to climb in the winter. 
Yes, yeah. And even then, our, sometimes our ice conditions are a little suspect, um, not, not ideal. So you and I met, I don't know if you remember, maybe you remember this. Um, I totally, on, totally remember. On, uh, what, made, what made me think of this was the whole chopping steps thing. I, my wife and I had climbed the uh, East Ridge of Forbidden and we were coming down and then somehow we met you on the descent and he, I think you had climbed the West Ridge. Is that correct? We climbed the West Ridge, three of us, and um, we down climbed the Upper North Ridge. Mm, oh, that's right. Yeah. To reach the East Ledges and as, um, as we started down the North Ridge, I watched these two climbers, you and Midge, um, you know, running up the East Ridge. And I think you guys got to the summit just after, just a, shortly after we left. And then, and then um, as we were going across, as I was going across the East Ledges, like, you know, I, Midge was coming down the rappel route to the ledges. That's right. Yeah. And so we um, exchanged a few words. And then later on, on the hike out, you guys catch up, caught up to us and, Past I remember us. that. Yeah, we were doing it car to car in a day, and we. But what As we me, were. Yep, and uh, which I think is the best way to do that. I hate carrying a heavy pack, so don't want to carry a pack and hike and sleep up there. But what made me think of that was that was in late summer, and I had misjudged the conditions on the glacier, um, thinking that you know well we'll be fine in in we could do the whole thing in running shoes. And so I brought an ice axe thinking, okay, if things get dicey, we'll have one ice axe. And sure enough, things got dicey and it, the, the approach to the East Ridge was very firm. And I remember cutting about a thousand feet of steps getting up there. And I, I had cut steps before, but on glaciers, you know, when I'd been in, you know, ill-prepared, didn't have crampons and boots and that sort of thing. But I'd never cut so many steps as I did that day. And it gave me an entirely new appreciation of what ice climbing was like in the 20s and 30s when nobody had front points. And in, case, in many cases, nobody, they didn't have crampons. It's a very tedious, hard job. And, you know, and, you, and in the end, you still feel rather insecure because you're standing there on rubber soles on, on ice. Yeah, so that, that, that day stands out for those two things. And hey, that's the day I met Jim Nelson. And it's well, also the day that I cut a thousand feet of steps. Well, crampons should have been the lesson there. I mean, yeah. it's, I learned that lesson at some point also. I always used to think ice axe, but now it's crampons. That, uh, mm. I take that before the ice axe. And, and um, the running shoes are the perfect footwear, but they need the crampons. Yeah, and now with modern crampon options, it's it's pretty easy to do that. But yeah, we were, this was what, gosh, tw well, 25 years ago or something like that. And, and we thought, oh, we can pull it off. And we did pull it off, but it was a little bit sketchy, I have to admit. But anyway, that, that day just stands out for me because that was the day I met you, which was great. And never since we've done some climbs together and we've you know, had some great times. It's been fun. Yeah. Well, last one last comment on the cramp crampons while we're time up was the ptarmigans. That's another piece of gear they did not have. Oh, I can imagine they didn't have those. If they couldn't so. afford an ice axe, they could not afford crampons. Yeah. Right. So.
They, I wonder, did they have, do you know if they had hobnailed boots or? They, they had homemade nails, which okay. fell apart at the end of the trip. They had hoped to climb Mount Logan and, and Goody, but um, when they got to Cascade Pass, their boots were falling apart. And so they had to abandon those, those climbs and hike, but, but they still had to hike back to their car. No car shuttle. Yeah. Oh yeah, for, for sure. Wow. What, what an undertaking for teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> Today, parents would probably be accused of child abuse if they let their kids to go out and do something like that. Um, as, they, as they should be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, well, Jim, any parting words for us other than, I, I mean, I want to say people should go out and buy this book. It's fantastic. I love looking through it and the, I skimmed through a whole bunch of those route descriptions and you know some of them I've climbed and I thought oh that was such a cool climb and others I looked at and thought wow that I want to go do that climb and so I really do highly recommend it to folks especially those that have easy access to the to the Cascades here It'll be people living in Portland Seattle area um, it's a very valuable resource and I, I know that people would enjoy and it's it's coffee table quality, which is really unusual for a guidebook. And so I commend you on putting together such a beautiful book. Well, thanks, Scott. <clears throat> I hope people enjoy the, enjoy the book and it gets them out to some, some good climbs. I'm and, sure it will. And that they don't just focus on the featured routes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, the classic routes. Because in many cases, I certainly know from living here in Mazama that Washington Pass, the classic routes are getting a little worn, weather worn. You know, there are too many people on them too often. And, and there's other great routes up there that just don't get much traffic at all. Well, and the, the whole design of the, of the book, too, even though we have the featured routes, we really make a, an effort to talk about the rest of the mountain and, and oftentimes show um, photographs of the other side of the mountain where the yep. feature route isn't necessarily as well as um, you know, list the other routes on the mountain. Yeah, and, uh, and hopefully this will get people out with more of the spirit of adventure and exploring and, and stuff instead of you know standing in line at the South Red of South Early Winter Spire with another eight parties on a Saturday because there's, there's just so much out there to do. I'm not going to stop doing that one. No, myself. no, I I love that route. I mean, I I find it. <laughs> I climb it every year many times because I can run up from, I can, you know, run up there from home and scramble to the top and back down. Well, it's such a great view, viewpoint. So it is. And it's a fun climb. I, I love that climb. And I know that one of the other interesting chance meetings that you and I had one time mm -hmm. was uh, I had climbed Liberty Crack with a couple friends of mine one day and we were coming down and we bumped into you on the trail with none other than Fred Becky. And you had taken Fred up the South Arred of South Early Winter Spire, which was the first time he had been on it since when he did the first ascent, which when was the first ascent of that route? Early forties, 42, I want to say. Okay. So here that, and that must, that maybe was around mid 2000, so maybe 2010, maybe I'm just yeah, throwing somewhere up. around then probably. And so Fred would have been, you know, well in, you know, close to, well into his eighties, um, that, that day. <laughs> and I know it was a wonderful thing you did taking him up there. Um, and it is a humorous part of that story. You and I were walking down the trail behind Fred 
and we were chatting about something, I don't remember what. Fred was often is doing his own thing. And all of a sudden, he made a hard left off of the trail and just started cutting the switchbacks and like bushwhacking straight down the fall line. And because I'm sure like he's not used to hiking on trails back then. And you kind of turned around and looked at me and just sort of shrugged your shoulders and went right after him through the brush. Well, the funny thing is I had seen him do that hiking down from Liberty Bell one time prior to that, that uh, trip where I saw you. Yeah. It's like yeah, kind he, of had that, that, he had done that before. <laughs> like, I don't need no stinking trail. <laughs> yeah, well, he knew it was a shortcut. He yeah. knew it was a shortcut, and it is. Yeah, it definitely is. That trail wanders and meanders quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so. And with the amount of traffic on it, I'm not, I'm not trying to endorse trail, you know, cutting switchbacks or no, going no. off the trail. I mean, with the amount of traffic that's up there, it, it's understandable the way the trail has been laid out, and I fully yeah. endorse what's been done. But yeah. it was entertaining to see how Fred handled that situation. Um, but yeah, that was another. We'll give Fred a pass. Yeah, I think we could give Fred a pass on that. Yeah. So, well, Jim, it's been great catching up and hearing about the book. I, like I said, I hope people will get out there and start using it to explore some of these more obscure and different routes and different seasons. I think it'll do a lot for their climbing to, like I said, get off some of the trade routes. So. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.